Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss local anesthetics, specifically the anatomy around what these drugs do in terms of blocking the nerves in the local area that we inject the medication into. We don't really want to go into the specifics of different types of local anesthetics, but more the general anatomy and physiology of how they they work. Right. So a lot of this goes back to our physio classes and trying to remember exactly how nerves work and understanding the physiology associated with that. Think back when you have impulses coming in through these different dendrites, they bring in the stimuli and then if it reaches a threshold, it will send from the trigger zone an action potential down the axon. Now the biggest difference between these different axons is if there's the presence of myelination or not. So these would be, if you remember, the Schwann cells and the PNS will wrap around the axon and cause the conduction to go from areas where there's no myelination to the next area where there's no myelination. So that's called the saltatory conduction, where it's just hopping between these nodes of Ranvier. As the action potential goes down the axon, what we're interested in doing, if we're doing a local anesthetic, we want to block that conduction down the axon. As Tanner was saying, there are down the axon spaced out this voltage-gated sodium channel. And when you have a myelinated axon, those nodes of Ramby air, which are the the spaces between each axon, are the only spots that are going to have this voltage-gated sodium channel. Whereas if you have an unmyelinated axon, all along the axon is going to have these voltage-gated channels. And that's the channel that we want to block when we administer our local anesthetic. So if we're going to be blocking a nerve that has high myelination, then we know we're not going to need to block as many of these sodium channels in order to block the stimuli going through. And how these work, if you remember with physiology, is once that action potential starts to go down the axon, the voltage on the inside of the axon is going to rapidly go up from a negative value to a positive value. We won't get into the specifics of numbers for this talk. But as it goes up, it's going to increase the value or the voltage inside the axon, which will then trigger the next voltage-gated sodium channel down the line to open up and continue. When you have a myelinated sheath, you only have those voltage-gated channels between each myelination spot, which is at the node of Ranvier. So when that first sodium channel opens up and sodium rushes into the axon, it's going to increase the voltage inside the axon and it will go all the way down past all the section that's myelinated to that next gap where the next sodium channel is. And then because it's a voltage gated sodium channel, that increase in voltage will cause that channel to pop open more sodium will rush in and it'll go down the next part of the axon that's myelinated to the next node of Ranvier. So we only need to block those few sodium channels along those axons. And as Tanner was saying, this process is called saltatory conduction. So think about these voltage-gated sodium channels in the axon membrane as like a V. So when they're just resting, they're closed at the bottom, open at the top. And then uh, on the inside of the axon, you have a plug basically that will close that. And that's a time gated channel. So when your action potential comes and opens sodiums rushing in after a specified amount of time, that channel then will be shut off with this plug. And at that point, think of it now as like an H. So you still are open at the bottom, open at the top, and you have this plug in the middle of your sodium channel. So when we're talking about what local anesthetics do, we'll get into specifically how they get there. 
but they're only able to block the sodium channels either when they are in their active states, so when they're open, sodium's rushing in, or when they're in their inactive state where you have the plug that's blocking sodium from going, and that's that time-activated gate that closes it. When it's in its resting state and it's just sitting there with the bottom closed and the open top, so remember that just sitting there like a V, there's nowhere for the local anesthetic to attach. And there's not the ability for us to block that voltage-gated sodium channel when the gate is just resting. The implications this has for us is that the more there is action potentials going down that axon, the more opportunity we have for that local anesthetic to block because that means it'll either be in the active state or in the inactive state, which happens right after the active state. So the more uh, axon is firing, the more likely that our local anesthetic will actually be able to block that channel. Some of you may be asking, what's the difference between a resting state and an inactive state? Why not just go from resting to active and then back to resting? Well, when you go to the inactive state, that's when the cell is repolarizing. And so it physically can't have another action potential come down the axon. And so in order to prevent that from occurring, it has that plug Tanner was talking about where it's in like that H shape and it's in its inactive state until the cell is completely repolarized and has reset itself. And now the axon is ready to fire again. So that's the inactive state he's talking about. And once it is repolarized, it switches back to the resting state. Mm -hmm. And then once the next action potential comes, it flips into that active state. So as he was saying, the more it's firing, the more likely we're going to find that sodium channel in either the active state or the inactive state. And those are the two that we can block it in. And if you remember the different ways that we can manipulate membrane potential, if somebody has a high potassium level, Potassium is going to depolarize the resting membrane. If somebody has a high potassium level, you think about their cardiac status, they're going to be more easily triggered into tachyarrhythmias. And that's because your resting membrane potential is higher. And so it's easier for you to trigger an action potential. That's not what we're doing with local anesthetics. Local anesthetics are just blocking that voltage-gated sodium channel. We're not manipulating or changing the resting membrane potential. Yeah, that's a, a good point to note. What's a team of 20,000 strong capable of? When they're working together, anything. WellSpan Health, recognized as a top employer in Pennsylvania, invites you to join our award-winning team. The WellSpan Health Anesthesia Group gives CRNAs the opportunity to practice in a setting that fosters professional clinical growth while still maintaining a sense of close community and family. Does the idea of working with exceptional, innovative teams inspire you? WellSpan has immediate opportunities in several locations for CRNAs and SRNAs, including hospitals and surgical centers. What's it like being a part of WellSpan's award-winning team? They strive to make every person feel welcome, respected, and valued in a safe and inclusive environment. Are you looking for excellent salaries, benefits, and relocation assistance? How about a signing bonus of up to $80,000? Well-balanced work and home life? You got it. At WellSpan, there's a community you'll love to call home. Nestled in small-town charm, WellSpan's eight hospitals and 220 care locations are near exciting cities like Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York City. WellSpan is reimagining healthcare. Inspiring health takes inspiring people like you. Learn more at joinwellspan.org CRNA. So how do we get the local anesthetic to this spot to block the sodium channel? What you have to think about is, are we going to block this channel from the outside of the axon or from the inside of the axon? So we want to block it from the inside. It would seem way easier if we could just block it from the outside, but we have to get the medication across the axon membrane, so that lipid membrane, inside the axolemma. 
and then bind to the sodium channel on the inside of the cell, the inside of that axon. And that's on the alpha subunit. Yes. So of the different parts of the actual voltage-gated sodium channel, it's the alpha subunit that we want to block by binding this local anesthetic to. So somehow we have to figure out how to get this drug into the body and then across inside the axon of this nerve and then block the sodium channel from the inside. So we're going to do a little bit of pharmacology talk here. When we discuss drugs moving across lipid membranes, it's like dissolve like is the quote I like to use. And I think we've all heard that in our chemistry classes. So like dissolve like, what that means is that in order to be dissolved through a lipid membrane, you have to be lipid soluble. So like dissolve like. If you're water soluble, you cannot go through a lipid membrane and vice versa. So in order to get these medications to go across the lipid membrane into the axon, we need these drugs to be in a lipid-soluble form. Well, the problem is these drugs flip-flop between water-soluble and lipid-soluble depending on if they're ionized or not. So if something is unionized, it's considered more lipid-soluble, and if it is ionized, it's considered more water-soluble. So it makes sense then that in order to get this medication across the lipid membrane, we need it to be unionized. So how do we know if a medication is going to be ionized or unionized? Well, we're going to get into chemistry here. That's all based on the concept of a pKa related to the pH of the solution that it's in. So that sounds really fancy and really confusing, but it's pretty simple when you, when you understand this one concept. If you're dealing with a base, the further basic a thing is, the more likely it is to react with an acid. So the more basic something is, the more likely it is to react with an acid. So if I have a drug, so all of our local anesthetics, most of them are weak bases. So if I have a local anesthetic that is a weak base and I put it in a solution that there are more stronger bases there, which do you think is going to react with the acid in the solution? It's going to be the more basic thing that's there, correct? Right. So our base, our weak base from our local anesthetic won't react and it will stay in its unionized form. However, if it reacts with an acid, it'll become ionized. So what you have to ask yourself is, what is the pKa of a drug? And we have tables that look all this stuff up that you can, you can see. So let's say I have a pKa of a local anesthetic that is 8.3, and I put it into a solution in the body that is, let's say it's in the blood, so the blood is 7.35 to 7.45. Well, obviously, my drug is more on the basic side than what the solution is, right? So it's going to be more likely to react with any acid it comes into contact with and turn into the ionized form. Hopefully that makes sense. I didn't confuse you more. What I'm trying to get at is the more basic something is with its pKa, the more likely it is to be in the ionized form because it'll react with an acid and become ionized. Right. And I think for me, it's helpful to think what has available hydrogens. If something is a base, it wants to accept hydrogens. If it's wanting to accept hydrogens, then it is unionized. When it accepts the hydrogens, it becomes ionized. So if you have a weak base like we do in these local anesthetics and you place it into a solution and that solution is more acidic and wants to get rid of those hydrogens, well, then it gets rid of those hydrogens to the base and then the base will become ionized. The pKa is the pH at which 50% will become ionized and 50% will be unionized. So when we talk about this in the body, when you know the pKa of the drug, when the drug is formulated, it has a specific pKa. We know what that is. You put that into the body, which can have variable pHs, and that's going to determine how much of the drug is going to become ionized, how much of it is going to say unionized. 
So the onset of action for these local anesthetics is going to be primarily driven by its pKa and the pH of the area that you're infusing to. So the pKa of the drug will be the primary indicator of its onset of action. Marshfield Clinic Health System is seeking CRNAs in Wisconsin. In-house call, no call, and beeper call opportunities available. $60,000 in student loan assistance during the SRNA program. Excellent salary of $213,856 for new grads. Post-call days, built-into-work schedule, family-friendly communities, and relocation assistance. Marshville Clinic Health System gives exceptional professionals a place to call home. Please contact Jennifer walters Plemon, CRNA Recruiter, at 715-221-5773. So going forward from here, in order to pass through the membrane into the axon, if you remember, we need the medication to be in its lipid-soluble form, which is the unionized. Well, if we inject a base, a weak base from our local anesthetic into this area, and the pH is lower than our pKa, which almost always it's going to be because we have a weak base, so let's say 8.3 pKa, and we're putting it into an area that has around a seven something pH that's more acidic, well, our local anesthetics then is going to interact with any acid there and become ionized. And it's not going to cross over into the membrane. So we're going to have a slower onset of action because this medication can't cross over the membrane into the axon and do its job if we're in an acidic environment. So what you can do is you can add bicarb into the area that you're injecting this local anesthetic to. And bicarb is a base and it's a lot stronger of a base than our local anesthetic is. So the bicarb, because it's more on the basic side, than our local anesthetic, the bicarb will react with any acid there and will save the local anesthetic from becoming an ionized form. So the local anesthetic will stay unionized and is able to quickly slip across the membrane into the nerve, into the axon where we want it to do its job. The issue now is once we get it there, it needs to be in its ionized form to actually bind and do its job on the voltage-gated sodium channel. Lucky for us, the inside of the axon is actually more acidic than on the outside. So in, it's now in a, an acidic environment. So what happens to that weak base? It automatically binds to the more acidic environment and becomes the ionized form, which traps it inside the axon because then it can't come back out through the lipid membrane because it's ionized. And then voila, we have our medication where we need it to be in the right form, and it can bind to that alpha subunit on that sodium pump and cause it to prevent any type of action potentials from going down that axon. Props to whoever developed that. I would have quit like three steps ago <laughs> when I had to keep flipping this thing back and forth to get it to actually be effective. It's crazy how people come up with this stuff. It's one thing for me to like try to wrap my brain around how it works, but to actually develop it, it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. The next thing we want to talk about is the specific types and chemical structures of these medications. We're not going to get into specific medications other than these broad categories, but the main two ways these are broken down is you have your esters and you have your amides. These local anesthetics are made up of a benzene ring, intermediate chain, which is going to be your ester or your amide, and then you're going to have the tertiary amine. If you're like me and you don't remember anything from the chemistry classes you've taken, the main thing you need to remember is just the difference between the intermediate chain. So that's the ester versus the amide. This will have implications for our local anesthetic because they are broken down by different mechanisms. And also when you discuss allergies, you need to know what classification these drugs are from. The first one we're going to talk about 
is the esters. Esters are broken down by the pseudocolonesterases and the amides are broken down in the liver. Next, you want to talk about if a patient exhibits allergies to one of these. If they are allergic to an ester, they're allergic to all esters. If they have a true allergy, don't give another ester. You'd want to give an amide. If you give an amide and they have an allergy, which is very rare with the amide classifications, you can still usually give another amide. It's only in the esters that if they're allergic to one, they're going to be allergic to all of them. So don't give another ester. Choose an amide instead. So when you look at these different types of medications, there's a ton of them. They all sound pretty close to the same thing, just with different beginnings of the word. An uh, easy way to remember is that amides have two I's in their name, whereas esters only have one, and that's just in the end of it, the cane part of it. So I remember amide has an I in it, so amides have an extra I in their name. So if you think about like cocaine, only has one eye. Whereas if you talk about lidocaine, so there's two eyes in lidocaine, that's going to be an amide. Whereas your cocaine, procaine, those are going to be your esters. That's a great way to look at it. When you're talking about all these local anesthetics, just simply look at the name, see if there's one eye or two eyes. And in your head, you can understand the concept of an ester versus a local anesthetic that is an amide. So next we want to talk about when we give the local anesthetics, what are these local anesthetics going to do? How do we increase the duration of action? How do we decrease the time that it takes to have an onset? How do we keep the drug where we want it to be, et cetera? So we've already talked about how PKA determines time of onset, meaning if a drug is going to be able to pass through the membrane because it's an unionized form, then it's going to be able to have a quicker onset. In terms of the local anesthetics in general, for the most part, there are some few exceptions, but for the most part, at the doses we give cause vasodilation. So if you think about the area that we're going to inject our medication into, there's going to be blood vessels there. Depending on which part of the body we're giving this medication into, it's either going to be more vascular or less vascular, which will affect how quickly this medication will be taken up. But as a whole, these medications will cause some vasodilation effects. As a result, we sometimes will mix the medication with epi. Since epi is a alpha-1 agonist, it's going to cause some vasoconstriction and prevent the medication from being swept out. Another part we want to talk about is protein binding. So with protein binding, there are two different types. The, the one type that we often think about is plasma protein binding. That's not what we're talking about here. So we're not talking about binding a molecule such as albumin. We're talking about proteins that are on the tissue in the space that we're injecting this medication into. And these proteins act as a reservoir that keeps the medication at the site that we want it to act upon and then is able to continue to release that medication off of those proteins as the concentration decreases in that area and increases then our duration of action because there's more of our local anesthetic at the site that we want it to be at to be then absorbed through the axon and cause the blockage that we want. And it's important to think about that because we talked about when you have areas that are highly vascular. So think about this. If you're just trying to do a local anesthetic, you're not obviously trying to get into the intervascular space, but it can diffuse into these. So if you're doing like a tracheal local anesthetic or interpleural, those are going to be highly vascular zones. And so you're going to have a lot of the local anesthetic taken up into the plasma. Once it's into the plasma, we're concerned about toxicity or having systemic effect. And so that's where when it binds to your plasma proteins, it reduces the chance that you'll have toxicity. So another thing we want to talk about is when the medication gets into the bloodstream at a high concentration, what side effects can we see? So this is abbreviated as LAST, which stands for Local Anesthetic Systemic Toxicity. 
So if we give the medication in a certain spot, we can cause this if we accidentally inject it in straight into the vascular space. So if you're going to do some block, you don't aspirate to check if you're in the blood and you accidentally give it right into a vessel. Now you just dumped all of that medication right into a vascular space and it's going to go into the systemic circulation. What are the negative effects that we can see from this? So the first one is we can have central nervous system toxicity. And the main symptom that you're going to see with central nervous system toxicity is seizure-like activity. How do you treat it? You can try to treat it with benzos. You can give 100% FiO2 in this case. You want to try to prevent them from being acidotic because if they are acidotic, it's going to potentiate the effects that occur from the CNS toxicity. So if you think about how we're going to do vent settings with these patients, they're going to be more acidic if they have elevated CO2 levels. So you do not want to let their CO2 become elevated because it will cause them to become more acidotic and make this CNS toxicity even worse. You can also have cardiovascular complications that occur as well. So when this local anesthetic is in a high concentration at the cardiovascular space, what's going to happen is you can have some decrease in the myocardial conduction system which also decreases the ability of the heart to actually pump and push out blood. And will also, because like I said before, it causes some vasodilation effects, the local anesthetic itself, that is, you're going to have a decreased SVR. So now you have a broken pump and no pressure because you have a decreased SVR. So you're going to go straight into cardiovascular collapse, which is obviously no bueno. So how do you treat it? You don't want to give epi in this specific case, or you want to try to shy away from that give amiodarone as the first-line drug for this cardiovascular collapse. And the next thing you want to do is give a, a lipid emulsion therapy. This lipid material will surround the local anesthetic in the systemic vascular system and will prevent it then from binding to wherever it would have bound to, whether it be central nervous system, cardiac, etc. It then will improve our cardiac function and our CNS function simply because we're, we're limiting the amount of local anesthetic that can bind to those receptors. Treat this patient like you would others do your normal ACLS with the addition of the lipid emulsion bolus. You can repeat the bolus three times total. So your initial bolus and then two more times. While you're doing all of this, you should keep in mind that cardiopulmonary bypass is your last resort. That's the next step in this algorithm. If they don't respond to ACLS and the lipid bolus, you'll need to move to cardiopulmonary bypass. The last thing we want to talk about is the other major complication associated with local anesthetics, and this would be the methemoglobinemia. The really big thing that you'll notice is that their pulse oximeter trending towards 85. Methemoglobin absorbs at different light on your pulse oximeter than the normal hemoglobin. And so even if your patient is adequately oxygenating, it'll pull it down towards the 85% mark. If they're under-oxygenating, it will falsely elevate this to the 85% mark. And this is basically due from complications with the iron on your hemoglobin molecules. When that iron molecule is oxidized, then you have this methemoglobinemia. Treatment for this would be um, administering methylene blue. So remember that when you are doing these local anesthetics is another complication that you may encounter. Well, perfect. I think that wraps up what we wanted to talk about today with local anesthetics. Obviously, this is a, a lot bigger of a topic that could take multiple talks, but we wanted to do a, a very general overview on the anatomy of these nerves and how we get the local anesthetics to where they need to be and what kind of side effects that can occur.